All right. If you guys will start making your way back to your seats, grab a beverage, grab a seat. Xavier's going to read for us from Psalm 130. This is just like my house every day. Um, if you want to grab a seat, if you want to open your Bibles to Psalm 130, that's where it'll be. Xavier is going to help us kind of get into that place of listening to the Lord in Scripture by reading Psalm 130 for us. Thanks, sir. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. If you, O Lord, shall mark inequities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness, that you may be feared. I wait for the Lord, my soul waits, and in his word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord, more than watchmen for the morning, more than watchmen for the morning. O Israel, hope is in the Lord, for with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption. And he will redeem Israel from all his inequities. All right. So if ever you want to read scripture, just have Xavier do it for you. Yeah. Amen. Right. Uh, thank you, sir. So if if you've been following with us in the penitential psalms, these seven psalms of Lent the, that we've been in uh, for the last few weeks that we were in last year as well, as we're learning Lent together as a faith family, um, this psalm kind of stands out as a little bit unique, doesn't it? Isn't it, this psalm kind of reads different than the other psalms that, that we have, um, ha have read, in part because it, it seems kind of happy. It seems like a good song, right? It starts out like the other penitential psalms, Lord, hear my cry, like, Lord, Lord give, give ear to, to my pleas. But the reality is, if the, like Lent, this journey that we've been on is a journey. Like, we're not standing still. We're not standing in one spot, going through the same cycle over and over again, but we're moving towards something. And like every journey that we're on, there's some point in Death's Valley when we see our destination in the distance. At some point, when you're hiking through the mountains, you turn the corner and you see the, the, the lake that you're headed to, to, to to be the place that you had set out for, right? You're, you're looking and you're seeing where the end spot is, right? Or even if you're driving from... Uh, back into Dallas from the flatlands that's all around like we do, right? When we're coming back in from the Panhandle, from Dieter's family. Like, there's a point where you come in and you can see the city. We're like, okay, we're almost home. This is it. We're almost there. In some ways, Psalm 130 is that psalm in our journey of Lent, in this penitential psalm. It's a place that along the way, when we glimpse the grandness and majesty of the road's end, even though there is still road still to travel. It's not an arrival psalm. It's not a I'm already there psalm. It's I see where I'm going psalm. I know where I'm going psalm. I can see where I'm, what I'm after and, and um, that I'm surely going to arrive there. Psalm 130 is a prayer from the vantage point of, again, seeing the destination in the end. And it trains us to fix our gaze on, what, on that which we will have at our end. It trains us to fix our gaze while we still have a ways to go. Right? It gives us this encouragement to push through to the end to make it home finally and forever. If you remember our psalm from last week, Psalm 102, we're taught to pray from the slight glimmer of reorientation. That we're moving from pain, from brokenness, from the reality and confession of our own sin, of the sin that we live in in the world, of the brokenness of things around us and in us. But we begin to see a glimpse of it. The, like, it's like the, the, the darkness in the tomb, the, the stone begins to roll away just, just a tad, and we get a glimmer and a glimpse 
this something's more. I go from being able to see three inches from my face to all of a sudden beginning to see what feels like a huge expanse of the world around me as I go from pitch black in the dark to a rising sun, right? That's the idea of Psalm 102. That's the vision of Psalm 102. That we're praying from the surprise of the possibility of life beyond the experience in the dark. But Psalm 130 teaches us to pray from a full-sided view of that life. A full-sided view of life, new and different. Not just the possibility of life, but the actual vision of life itself. O Israel, hope in the Lord, the psalmist says. For with the Lord there is steadfast love. With Him is plentiful redemption. Plentiful redemption. Not the possibility of redemption. Not the maybe of redemption. Not the might be of redemption. But plentiful, abundant, overflowing redemption. Literally everything shattered and broken is healed. Everything abandoned to the chaos of evil, reclaimed and steadied. Everything lost in sin of life apart from life with God, found and restored to right relationship. Everything dead in itself, ending in death, alive again and forever. That's what the psalmist sees. No longer just the possibility of what could be, but the surety of what is. But notice it's not the fullness of the arrival of those things, but the overwhelming sureness and beauty of what is coming, which compels the prayer. Verse 5 five and 6, I wait for the Lord. My soul waits, and in his word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen for the morning. More than watchmen for the morning. There's a looking out for this thing. There's a knowing that for sure the morning will come, right? A watchman looks for the morning, not with any sort of worry that the morning won't arrive, but only the anticipation of when is it going to get here. We need it to get here. I long for it to get here, right? There's a big difference, right? There's a difference between the possibility of morning coming and the surety of morning coming. There's a difference between the maybe of life new to the, to the reality that life surely will be different, right? There's similar emotions. We're excited in both places, but one, one, this sureness, this reality that what is in the dark will eventually be in the light. What could be will actually be has a different motivating force, doesn't it? Has a different energizing force. Or as one translation puts it, this is what the psalmist is trying to, to help us to, to see. I pray to God, my life a prayer, and I wait for what he will say and do. There's an expectation of, not, not, again, not what could be done, but what he will say and do. I'm waiting for God for what he'll say and do. Listen, we've said that the, um, the complaints in the penitential psalms, the, the me, my's, and I's, the, 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 the my brokenness, my, my enemies, my weariness, my life being given up, that these have an appearance of self-absorption, but are in fact actually acts of hope. Then we pray these to God, and we pray these complaints about how life is, life with ourselves, life with God, life with others. We're actually confessing in our pain the truth that deep down that we're desperate and we're powerless, but yet we long for things to be different. We long for things to change. We long for our marriages to be different, our careers to be different our family to be different, for poverty to end, depression to end, racism to end, violence to end, and we're done with all of that. It's withering away in the darkness of death, of its death, of death of the world, and even our death. But the praises in the same psalms, 
are also acts of hope, but a different kind of hope. Not a hope of what we long to, long to be done, but a radical hope, a hope that fundamentally alters our participation in the end of things and in their re-beginnings too. Quickly, here's just a recap of where we've come. Psalm 6, my soul is greatly troubled, but you, O Lord, how long? My soul is greatly troubled. I'm broken. I'm, I'm at a place of loss. Like, I can't live this, Lord. How long until you listen to me? And yet the psalm ends, the Lord has heard my plea. The Lord accepts my prayer. All my enemies shall be ashamed and greatly troubled. They shall turn back and be put to shame in a moment. Something has changed in the praying for the psalmist, right? The psalmist went from, Lord, how long, to, Lord, you've heard, to, Lord, what you've heard will actually come to be. My enemies will be put to shame. Or Psalm 32, I acknowledge my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. The psalmist clearly says, listen, I'm one who's broken and I'm off. I don't hide it from you. I've stopped trying to hide it from you. But listen, I've admitted to where I am, I am off of things. And you, and you forgave me. You've, you've, you've forgiven my iniquity. And so then he ends with, be glad in the Lord. Rejoice, O righteous. But wait a minute, the psalmist isn't righteous. We just said he wasn't, right? But he's off. But the Lord forgave him. There's something happening even in the brokenness, right, where he admits his own brokenness. That there's a call to something more. Because we know the psalmist wasn't righteous, but yet he's saying, Rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. That somehow, even in, the, in his own brokenness, he's participating in righteousness. He somehow, in something outside of himself, some other way than just his own broken soul, he's now a part of an upright heart, one with an upright heart. Or Psalm 38, For your arrows have sunk into me, and your hand has come down on me. Psalm 38, the, the, the darkest of the, the penitential psalms. feels like the Lord is completely against us, right? And so the psalmist begins the prayer. Lord, you're against me. Look, you've caused this. Your hand has come down on me. And then at the end, even when feeling the weight of, of, his, of, of all of life, right? The crisis of his disorientation. He says, make haste to help me, O Lord, my salvation. The one that he says causes the pain is the one that he looks to for the relief of his pain. Something is changing in the psalmist, in the praying, in the, in the process, in the movement. Something is beginning to change even in the soul of the psalmist. Or Psalm 51, for you will not delight in sacrifice, says the psalmist, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. There's nothing I can do to make amends, to make right for the things that I have done. Right? This was the ownership psalm, right? We saw the full ownership of it. But then the psalmist says at the end, Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in right sacrifices and burnt offerings and, and um, whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. Something has changed from where nothing is acceptable. There's nothing I can do. Then we know what he says, right? A broken and contrite heart is what the Lord longs for. But there's this vision at the end of when the Lord comes to build back up his kingdom. When the Lord makes right, then these ways of living, these sacrifices will be acceptable. Then we'll all be ones with hearts who can actually offer the things that we have to the Lord. Or Psalm 102 from last week. All the days my enemies taunt me, those who deride me, use my name for a curse. For you have taken me up and thrown me down. Again, like all the other penitential psalms, there's this weight, this feeling of brokenness, this, this life is over kind of mentality. 
all because it feels like the Lord has, is against him, right? But then he says, nations will fear the name of the Lord, and kings of the earth will fear your glory. When people gather, not because of your anger, but when people gather together in kingdoms to worship the Lord. When they gather not because they feel like the Lord's crushed them, but because they feel like the Lord's forgiven them, the Lord's saved them. They come to worship the Lord. For the children of your servants shall dwell secure. The generations that come after us, the offspring, shall be established before you. There's a vision of something bigger and more than where the psalmist started in the journey of even each individual psalm, much less in our Lenten journey, right? In the same manner that the psalms teach us to boldly voice our disorienting pain and hyperbolic passion to the Holy One, to God Himself, they also train us to speak what can hardly be imagined. The psalms train us to pray open-hearted before the Lord, to confess our pains and, our, and our, all the things that we feel before the Lord, but they also train us to speak of things that can hardly be imagined, to voice with similar hyperbolic passion and boldness, a vision of life whole that feels hidden to our senses, but wholly known in the depths of our being, to confess something that maybe our eyes don't see yet, but our whole body knows to be true. This, these psalms, in preemptive praise, evoke in us a feeling, an image, a memory of a new reality yet to come into being, but which is no less real to our hearts and souls. They teach us to pray in faith, don't they? Isn't that what we're doing? Isn't Psalm 130 a prayer in faith? In the certainty of things hoped for, in the surety of things that, we're, that, we're, that we've not yet seen, right? In this way, the psalms help us to pray beyond the end. Pray not just for this to end, but for something after this end. They enfold us in the past, present, and future actions of God's redeeming, transforming, saving, and re recreating work. That's what the psalmist is teaching us to pray. When we pray with the psalmist, or as Walter Brueggemann notes, the language of the psalms permit us to be boldly anticipatory about what may be, or what we can be, what we can see as well as discerning about what has been. Isn't that a beautiful reality? The psalmist isn't teaching us to just pray like there's an end, beyond an end, but to hold in this tension of not quite there yet, but getting there, vision of life, where we don't dismiss what we've gone through and what the reality of where we stand, but we can pray with anticipation, without naivety, for the things that we know to be true. Listen, we've said that the Psalms are prayed amid the flow and tangle, the torrent of our experience of real life. That we are always in life and with God, moving in and out of being securely oriented, painfully disoriented, surprisingly reoriented. That all of life finds ourselves, we, all of us find ourselves somewhere in this flow. And sometimes we start our day at one point and end our day in another. And sometimes we make a full circle through, through them all, it feels like, right? And in the same way, the Psalms pray from these places within this flow. And these prayers have been the school of communion and conversation with God for millennia, precisely because they are true to life. Precisely because they're true to life. They're over-the-top, too-much-information expressions are not meant to be strictly descriptive, but metaphorical, to be poetic. These are poems as prayer, and they give voice to the extremities of life. They help us to feel and express the extremities of our life. 
Extremities in our own lives and in the lives of others. Extremities that recognize the depths of despair and death and that acknowledge the sheer gift of life. Both those things, in tension, together, is the life that we live. Christian prayer at times is accused of being naive and wishful, isn't it? Sometimes our prayers and encouragements appear disconnected from reality, from the evidence of the current context and the circumstances. Maybe even this week, we've, we've heard some of those prayers. And to be honest, sometimes they can be. This is especially true when offered prematurely in the falling. In the journey which necessitates and precedes the rising. If anything, hopefully Lynn has taught us in some ways that the journey that we're on to die to the old self is the same journey as the journey of grief. The way we move into the death of the old into the life of the new is the same way in which we grieve the loss of things that we love. That we grieve at the brokenness, the evils of our society. And if we try to move too quickly through those, we try to skip the processes. Because how long has this journey been, right? This has been almost 40 days, right, since we started this? It'll be 46 by the time we get to Easter, Easter morning. That's a, lot, that's a lot longer than Advent, right? That's a lot longer than the 12 days of Christmas, of celebration, right? That's longer than Epiphany Tide, this re- revelation of Jesus' kingdom coming. This journey, the Lenten journey, the, our faith family in history, throughout history, has seen this part of the journey, this difficult part of the journey, as the most necessary and to some extent the longest part of the journey. Too often we good-hearted believers attempt to speed up the process of ending the old, of letting grief do its work. But Lord willing, we've learned through Lent and through our Psalms of Lent this year and the years past that the journey downward, that when we are both led and chased down, is the goal. The journey is the goal. It's not merely the process. To discover along the way all the things that the psalmist has discovered, right? What did every prayer start with? Life is against me. I'm done with life. Lord, you're here. Life is against me. I'm done with life. Lord, you're here. Life is against me. I'm done with life. Lord, you're here. Life is against me. I'm done with life. Lord, you're here. Life is against me. Like Psalm 38, it's darkest. Life is against me. Lord, I hope you're here. And all the way to Psalm 30. To the Lord, you've heard my cry. And so I wait for you more than watchmen for the morning. Listen, we're led by a good shepherd. We're chased by goodness and mercy all the days of our lives, including the days in the shadowed valley. We're chased and led until we arrive at the end, where we can say, it is finished. Our life on our own is over. Then and only then, Then and only then, then and only then can hope for more not be a naive dream, but something actually visible. Only if we let the journey go all the way. Only then can hope be more for more, not be a naive dream, but something actually visible. Only in the depth of our need do we realize the depth of our redemption, our salvation, our comfort, only then do we see that we are true, what we are truly waiting for and what will surely be. And so hope becomes not a wish, but a power. 
Not a dream, but an energy that catalyzes life. Not life as it was before, no matter how good or not it was before. Remember, we start Lent wherever we are. Sometimes Lent finds us in a good place in life, right? Maybe you started this journey of Lent not really wanting to walk into the valley of the shadow of death. Maybe you were in the, you were, felt like you were in green pastures next to still waters. But Lent arrived at a place wherever we were, and if we followed the Spirit into the Lenten season, by God's grace, we're in a place different than we were before, even if the place we started was good. Obviously, if we're in a place of brokenness already, we already felt like we were in the valley. And so maybe Lent just caught us up, gave us a language for what we were actually in in the moment. Helped us see the place along the journey which we actually already were. But the life that Lent shows us, the life that leads at the end of this, this time which Jesus has been leading us, is life different. It's full. It's forever life. It's a Psalm 130 life. And the Psalm 130 and the Psalms that are like it are not naive about life during the darkness, nor are they nostalgic for life before. Instead, they are engrossed by the sight of a different life beyond the end. A life with God and others, expansive and inclusive, holding us and carrying us forward with a current that comes through, that contains the flow of our ABC, our orientation, disorientation, reorientation, tanglement. It's a vision of life that finds all this kind of turmoil, this complexity that we find ourselves in. Again, we can always we can say we've some days we're we're at A, some days we're at B, some days we're at C, some days we're in between them all. All that takes place in, in the midst of Psalm 130, in the grand current of God's wisdom and God's desire. Remember, as the psalm said last week, But you, O Lord, are enthroned forever. Of old you laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. What I walk on, what's below me, what's above me is yours. You've made it. Where I tread is where you're leading and where you're chasing. Or in our psalm today, for with the Lord there is steadfast love. It's never not been. It never not was. It's never not guided me to this place. And with him is plentiful redemption. And he will redeem Israel from all of his iniquities, from all the brokenness. The place of Psalm 130 is prayed, is amid the flow, in a vision of life beyond the end. On the other side of death, of all the disquiets or hearts. Psalm 130 is prayed with the vision of the, of the other side of all that disquiets our hearts, all that dilutes our souls, all that dissolves our relationships, all that destroys our life. The vision of life in Psalm 130 is a life redeemed, a vision of life of the things in life broken, wounded, distorted, made whole. A life in which the old prayer we've been praying, Lord, in your desire and wisdom have mercy not longer a prayer, a possibility, but a prayer of surety, a prayer answered. And the psalmist has experienced that answer. Look at verses 3 and 4. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? What life, what world, what possibility could exist except by your present and perpetual and patient and powerful grace? None. No life, no world. No possibility. If, Lord, if you just count, if you counted any iniquity, if you kept any record, how could we even be here? How could I even have breath in my lungs? How could I even be one who could pray this prayer? But with you, says the psalmist, there is forgiveness. 
with you in your presence, in your power, in your grace, is restoration of purpose, redemption from failure and oppression, reconciliation of relationship, recreation of shalom, of wholeness and holiness. With you there is forgiveness, that you may be feared. Feared is a strange word, isn't it? What is there to fear in forgiveness? What is there to fear from one who does not keep a record of wrongdoing? I suggest the psalmist has a dual image that's being evoked in this revelational phrase. The first stems from the consistent Old Testament picture of fear of the Lord as a reverence in relationship, an awe and wonder in communion with God. Forgiveness, God's posture and action toward us being the foundation of the possibility of that relationship in this life itself. As Olivia read for us earlier, if God didn't hesitate to put everything on the line for us, embracing our condition, recognizing our sinfulness, recognizing our fleshliness, recognizing the, of who we are, if he, didn't, if he did not only recognize that, but enter into it fully and wholly, exposing himself to the worst of us by sending his own son, is there anything else he wouldn't gladly and freely do for us? How could we not be in reverence and awe of one who would do such things to gain relationship, to restore relationship, to ensure relationship? Yet there's another revelation of life in these words, an image for those things that are against life with and in God. If God is consistent in not marking iniquity, so persistent in reestablishing a relationship and all that that entails, then what possibility is there to succeed in living apart from Him? What possibility is there to succeed in having a whole and good life apart from Him? Or to say it differently, what is the likelihood that shame and evil or our own image of life win? Who would dare tangle with God, says Paul in Romans, by messing with one of God's chosen? Who would dare even to point a finger, the one who died for us, who was raised to life for us, is the presence of God at this very moment sticking up for us? What compels the psalmist to pray is a soul-level vision of life, whole and holy, reconciled, redeemed, and secure by God's desire and wisdom and mercy. I wait for the Lord. My soul waits. Not just I wait, so I'm sitting down and not action, but my soul waits for it. My whole being longs for it, anticipates it, is ready for it. I hope in His Word. My soul waits for the Lord more than the watchman for the morning. More than the watchman for the morning. The Psalms of praise, contends Brueggemann, like the Psalms of complaint, also overstate the case because they are essentially promissory. That is, they are not descriptions of what is evident always, but they are renderings of what is surely promised and toward which the speaker is prepared to live. It's not just a vision, a naive vision, a disconnected vision, a vision that's, that is just something that you maybe you paint in, in your children's classrooms, right? It's a vision that, again, we've walked through this, this valley, this shadowy valley, long enough to know all the complexities and depth and darkness, right? And yet we come to this vision, a vision of what could be, of what will be, 
from a place that now we can say we can actually live into it. It can actually be the life that we go after. That I don't just wake up every day and find myself back into the cycle of A, B, and C. But now I wake up every day living for the thing which God has shown me. For the life that God says is mine in Him. That I know one day I will arrive at in its fullness. Despite the emotional and societal evidence that suggests that the King has not come through our journey, we have come to see that even in such an unconventional manner, indeed, Hosanna, our need for salvation, Hosanna, salvation is here. Indeed, we've, joined, we've come to see with all the saints and sinners, the needy and the hopeful, following Jesus, that blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. For Psalm 130 te teaches us to see a world of promise and to live into that promise through Jesus. Or as Paul would say later, for all the promises of God find their yes in Jesus. That is why it is through Jesus that we utter our amen to God for his glory. Would you do me a favor? Will you grab your handouts? If you're new with us or are still trying to figure out Christ City, we do this a lot. We, we want to have time on our days together where we can reflect and respond. Sometimes we do that in conversation. Sometimes we do that uh, through extended song. In this series, we've been doing it through time of prayer and being led through prayer, letting the Psalms teach us to pray. And so what you have before you is just a little sheet of paper that will help us pray Psalm 130. And so quickly, here's what the instructions so if Psalm 130 is meant to help us see a life, a life beyond the end, a life different than the status quo, then life is in the midst of darkness, and then to live into that life, then here's how we can pray that psalm for what it's worth. We use the first three verse, the first couple of verses, Psalms three, uh, verse three and four. Let the Spirit lead you into the light beyond the darkness of the old's death. Pray them until you believe them. So we use the first couple verses, verses 3 and 4. If you guide, you keep records of wrongdoings, who should stand? As it turns out, forgiveness is your habit, and that's why you're feared. That's why there's a reverence relationship. Pray that till you believe it, right? Sometimes I think we believe it. Sometimes I think I don't, right? So pray it until you believe it. When you believe it, when it's something that's more than just a routine word, and that, listen, you may not get any further than that. If you don't get any further than that in our five to seven minutes of quiet, that's fine. It's not the goal is not to get through your through the instructions and through the paper. If that's all you can pray, then that, let that be all you can pray. That's okay. You don't get any extra points for praying the entire psalm. Okay? So, but if you begin to believe those words, then ask the Spirit to use the next couple of verses, verses 5 and 6, to evoke the language of the psalm to bring to mind an image of feeling a memory of life beyond the end of the old, it is a life worth living, in, living to, into. It is, ask the Spirit to give you a vision that's worth living for. Not just the end of the difficulties, but the restoration of what is broken, right? The fullness of what is different on the other side in Jesus. Consider, what vision of redemption, of new life is the Spirit leading you to watch for, to wait for, to hope for, and to live into? Ask the Spirit. What do you want me to see? What do I see? And then candidly pray from that place of sight of the end. Let 
your prayer flow from what you see that the Lord has given you of life beyond death, even your own. When you're ready, let the final verses be a prayer that draws you to the table already prepared for you. Allow these words to be a prayer not for something future, but for something already done. And so a hope that you can live by. Again, not a hope that you can live, that you might live into, but a hope that you can actually live by. Once you come and grab your communion elements, return to your seat, say the prayer that's going to be up on this little screen on stage. So fancy. And then receive the elements. If you haven't received communion when Kyler starts to play, that's your cue to come up and do so. Make sense? Any questions? All right, let me, let's do this. Let me pray for you, and I'll let you get to praying. We'll have about five to seven minutes to do so, okay? Father, we thank you that the journey that you lead us on um, Lord, is the journey of life, of life with you, of life in you, a journey that in your desire and wisdom is a journey that mercifully leads us to the end of things that keep us from you, into life whole and full with you. Whereas David would say, shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Lord, I know my friends long for that. But I'm not sure that we all see that. So I pray even just for these few moments, Father. Whether we can't get past the reality that if you counted wrong, we would none of us would be here that nothing in this world would stand. And so the way you look at us must be different than what we could ever imagine. If we can't get past that, let us rest in it, wrestle with it, until we believe it. Father, and if we believe it, Father, Lord, give us a vision that lets us live it. Live in the fullness of what is sure to be our life in you. Save us. Salvation is here. In Jesus' name.